All right. So the purpose of this call, Jeff, is to kind of bounce a couple key ideas off of you or questions that I've been sharing with a lot of innovators that work around defense and intelligence community ecosystem. And it's mm-hmm. pretty simple. Um, the questions are, one, what are you currently working on that you think others would find interesting? So you can you know, talk about Eastern Foundry or some of the things you're working on. Two is, what's one application of an emerging technology that makes you excited or concerned or both? And then number three is, what is one way that you think people will need to adapt given how new technologies um, and the cultures are changing? So technological uh, context that we're facing, how, how do people need to change? Tell us about yourself. What are you currently working on that you think others would find really interesting? I think the, the two big things that I'm excited about that I hope other people are excited about, number one, it's media and marketing. Like, I mean, we've been in business now for about two and a half years, and for two of those years, for the first two years, I was, you know, 99% focused on trying to solve what I perceived to be the process barriers that existed to small business success and government contracting. So, you know, how do you give the education? How do you equip with access to professional services? How do you try to connect government buyers and sellers together? That was... So let me... Can I interrupt and rewind a little bit? So let me ask you, like, a, a prequel question. So one, what is Eastern Foundry and how did it come to be? Sure. So Eastern Foundry started off as an incubator co-working space for predominantly small government contracting companies. Um, What it has become is really much more of a broad-spectrum market facilitator. So I'll I'll get more into what I mean by that in a minute. Um, And how did it get started? It basically got started out of my own frustrations. So about three years ago, I thought that I was going to go back into government contracting under my own company doing the kind of international development work that I had been doing previously. And it was really, you know, it was exciting work. I thought I had a really good resume to qualify myself to do that work. And despite those gold stars, I quickly got nowhere. And that really frustrated me. So I created the resource that I thought should exist in the market. Okay. And how long ago was that? Uh, So we started business about two and a half years ago. Okay. I remember you and I met just about, I think, three years ago, right right as you were getting it off the ground, and we sat down and kind of I got to see it evolve. And, I mean, to me, it seems like you guys have achieved some incredible milestones. You know, it seems like you're growing. have uh, two locations now, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, Lydia and Roslyn. And, yep. um, okay, so back back to the other question of what you're currently working on is marketing and uh, yeah. Things. So, so, but marketing, I want to kind of make, if I could just pause on marketing for just a minute, I don't mean marketing Eastern Foundry. Um, what I mean by that is that we've, we initially, you know, kind of like the first two years, we were really focused on creating resources and tools to help a small government contracting company navigate the acquisitions process. 
And then about six months ago, I started realizing that even though we had created some pretty good tools, some pretty good infrastructure that would help a small business get into the market, there were a tr- there was just this tremendous swath of companies who should be working, or at least could be working with the federal government, that don't even know that that's an option, that they have absolutely no idea what the government's buying at any given moment. And whenever I would approach government officers about this issue, um, how do I say this nicely? The answers I got um, were discouraging and because they all basically came back to telling me that I was wrong and that they, in fact, you know, agency blah had just launched a innovation marketplace specifically to engage with non-traditionals and, you know, the non-traditionals should go there. Or, you know, that they would say, oh, you know, that's, that's, you know, they're in the wrong because they should go to FBO. We put all of our stuff on FBO. And the lack of, um, let's say this, I thought the lack of interest in the government's part in actually creating new channels to engage, um, you know, they basically, they, they were trying to dictate the terms. And well, the here's what I see is one of the, one of the like primary like stumbling blocks is in order to, to participate in some, some one of these um, innovation funnels, you know, mm-hmm. you have to be able to go to an industry day and then you have to be able to write, um, you know, a response to an RFI and then you have to be able to, uh, you know, churn out a lot of hours uh, bidding on multiple uh, proposals. And you're going to gonna, you're gonna be going up against, even with any advantage you could possibly get out of some sort of um, uh, small business liaison or industry day geared towards small business, you're going to be going up against other people that have a lot of experience with the proposal writing and business capture piece of it. So it's a lot of effort, a lot of lift, you know, to get in the door, even, even with these programs in place. And so it's easy in that environment. It's easy for innovative companies to turn away or small businesses to burn out. Um, and then also, if you win, you know, if you don't get funded in time, then it's a real liability mm-hmm. for your business. Yeah, so I agree with everything you've just said. Um, absolutely, you know, 100% agree with everything you've just said. And that's really what we were focused on kind of in those first two years was how do we break that cycle? How do we train, equip, you know, a small business to be able to to be able to write a proposal effectively, or to be able to understand what it means to have a um, you know DCA compliant accounting platform. These are all important things in the government market that are largely you know, unheard of anywhere else. Um, what I'm saying is that there is a messaging and awareness issue that actually comes before everything that we just said. Which, and so, like, even if tomorrow we woke up and the government acquisition process worked as well as, you know, our wildest dreams would have it, my, what I'm, my, my current hypothesis is that it largely wouldn't matter because the kinds of companies that we want to come in the door don't even know the door is there. 
or that there is something behind the door that might be interesting. So yeah, yeah. we're okay. so marketing, so, and what I like to say is kind of building a discovery opportunity. Like maybe that doesn't require them to show up to an industry day or take time off of their other projects. Something yeah. where they can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So as a result, we're looking a lot more at things like how do like we built a lot of online education. Um, we released it a few like you know three months ago, and this kind of insight that we really need to be thinking much as much about PR marketing engagement being fun and a little uh, you know the opposite of the traditional associations with government contracting have led me to kind of go back and we're going to be reshooting and actually redeploying all of the online education that we've built because, okay. you know, I think the content was good, but the delivery was, um, you know, as kind of like young and not suit wearing as it was the first time, I think it needs to be even more so. Okay. So we're like so. This is all coming back to this this PR marketing problem that our the government market has the government and the government market have. So it's you're saying uh, providing marketing services providing marketing services for the companies that are in your cohort, right? So marketing. No, again, this government. is this is no. So we're we're I'm, no. I mean, we do that. We we do that. We build education around it. What I'm talking about is. How okay? So here, let's say for example that the NGA needs better facial recognition. The current ways that NGA broadcasts that they need better facial recognition is uh, through like FBO, and they disseminate it through um, you know industry days, and they disseminate it through consortium OTA consortium. And they have their GeoIn Solutions Marketplace. And my response to that is that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because the only people that come to these places where you're sharing what you need are the people who already know that they want to work with you. The kinds right. of companies that you're trying to cultivate will never, ever, ever go to FBO or read the quadrennial defense review, or listen to the, you know, the, the, you know, whatever it is, the administrator's comments on IT modernization at NGA. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is, is because, I'm, because I think that Eastern Foundry needs to take a role that goes outside of the incubation of individual businesses to the modernization of the entire market, we're doing a lot more stuff in well we we're gonna be we are in the process of rolling out a couple new products that are specifically focused on the media space, uh basically in the news space. And so really trying to come up with new ways to capture what's going on inside the government market and share that. Yeah. No, that's great. So ag- aggregating opportunities and then broadcasting them to the private sector, to the, um, to the areas where yeah, discover the opportunity. That's I mean that's the content, but like I mean there's Gov Matters and the Bridge, and a lot of other 
there are, and then there's a lot of you know, print publication, GovCon Wire, you know, everything else that is currently delivering content. Our premise is that the con that it's it's partially a problem about content, but it's even more so a problem around format and structure and relationships. Well, yeah, but those are. I mean, you, you don't even get to relationships. Like, I, I, th- I see the world sort of as a funnel. And at the very top of the funnel is the universe of companies that could sell, that, that could be selling, let's just choose any given, you know, facial recognition since I said before. You know, there's sort of the universe of companies that have a facial recognition capability. And then, like, as you move down the funnel, you know, you kind of go from, like, having the capability to being aware that the government is interested to becoming interested in selling to the government to devoting some real time into kind of building internal capabilities, which would include relationships as well as, you know, proposal writing and proposal management and ECAA and all the other stuff that comes with it. And you're building capabilities and then, you know, the, kind of toward the bottom of the funnel, you're actually getting the people who are going to write proposals, they're actually going to take the time to write the proposal. And then you have some subset of those that submit and then some set, subset of those that win. Well, so, like, what I'm talking about is the very, very, very top of the funnel because I think that we're losing, we're, we're losing a fighting effort if we try to modernize without – engaging the non-traditional community. Mm-hmm. Like, we're, we're, we're trying to streamline you have, a problem. Do you have that funnel drawn out anywhere? Is that a graphic that we can share with people? or? Um, thing? I mean, it's just in my head. I mean, okay. There's nothing proprietary about it, but... Okay. You know, happy, happy, I mean, feel free to take that. Okay. So number two question is, what's one application of an emerging technology that makes you excited or concerned or both? I mean, sort of the, it's kind of a super interesting question in this moment. Like, you know, there is so much happening in the world. I mean, and just because it's, I mean, there's a lot of ways to answer that question, but because we're talking about government and because, you know, government is kind of, I don't know, I think that almost it's most troublesome in the big data space, that's what I'll point to. It's just like that is kind of terrifying. Like the amount that yeah. the government knows about us and the level of justified and I think also unjustified paranoia about what the government is doing, can do, wants to do, that mm-hmm. I think that, you know, there's, so on, on the one hand we're, we're asking our intelligence and security services to use, to comb through vast, vast, vast quantities of data in order to find these needles and haystacks, these nefarious activities, relationships, intentions by bad actors. But at the same time, we're also asking them to stop short of things that we find unsettling as citizens that believe in a right to privacy. So, you know, how do you how do you square that circle? I mean, I think that I think that more almost probably more than any other issue facing 
deep, from, a, from a technology perspective, I think that one probably draws the most new moral considerations. Like, I think they're, like, biogenetic, you know, there's, they're, they're like, some of the stuff that, like, CRISPR technology is right, right. more terrifying to me, but I don't see that <laughs> as, like, a government, that, that to me isn't, like, a government activity. That's, like, a, you know, that's, those are people, yeah. those are scientists in labs. Wow. Well, it isn't, it isn't. I mean, I just actually co-blogged with J.J. Snow, and uh, she, her answer to this question was CRISPR, and that, and she mm-hmm. said that, the um, accessibility of um, some of these yeah. biogenetic technologies is this is, is frighteningly yeah. um, the bar is frighteningly low Terrifying. to get in the door. Yep. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I I, I I don't disagree. Yeah. So number three, what's one way that you think people are going to have to change or should change to adapt to a new technological environment? It could be a governmental context or yeah. or something else. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think I think one of the most how do I say this? I think that one of the most important things that people need to start thinking about is the cost of the counterfactual. Um, and what I mean by that, like the, the fake fake news. Um, not, not exactly. So what I'm, what I'm thinking about specifically is here, here's the scenario. So let's say, for example, okay, so, so no, 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 this is an example. This is, this is true. There's a pilot shortage in the U.S. Mm. And one of the reasons that there's a pilot shortage in the U.S. is that I think it was like in the early 80s, I think was, the Congress, Congress said that the bar for certification of a pilot, a, a commercial pilot, would be double the existing number of hours. So, you know, I'm, I'm making this up a little bit. It was like, you know, you, previously you need to have like a thousand hours of supervised flight time, and then you could become, you know, checked out to be an independent pilot, you know, running people around in you know, 747s. And then they doubled it because of a, a, a pilot. You know, there was an accident, a bunch of people died, and he was a relatively young pilot, <clears throat> and so they doubled the hours. Seems like a reasonable reaction, right? You know, inexperienced pilots are killing, inexperienced pilot killed people, we need more experienced pilots, cool. Well, the result of that has been that you were now at 2,000, I don't know if these are the right numbers, but conceptually, we've doubled the amount that it takes to get into a program, and as a result, far, far, far more pilots are, like, boogieing over to, like, Europe, where they don't have, like, where the requirements are still a 1,000 hours, and as a result, we have, like, a major, major deficit of pilots in the U.S. So, but here's the problem. No congressman, congressperson, is ever going to take a stand and say, you know what? we should go back to a thousand hours because, <laughs> yeah. you know, God forbid, you know, it could have been a goose could hit a plane and you know what they're assuming it was one of these pilots, you know, it almost doesn't matter. Like as soon as we, as soon as we dial back the security blanket that we've mm-hmm. put in place, the, the thresholds and oversight, regulatory oversight, 
you know, that congressman is going to be destroyed in the press. Yeah. So as a result, there's a single direction ratchet that exists Mm -hmm. when it comes to safety and oversight type functionality. And this has always been a problem because there's actually a cost to this. So, like, one of the costs of this is that we pay a lot more for, you know, our air travel because we have these more experienced pilots. And, you know, that's a relatively, you know, you could say, hey, you know what, you can't put a price on human life. Cool, I get it. But this is, the same issue applies across almost every topic, which, you know, you know the number of, you know, how much does it check costs to become a surgeon? I mean, how, many, how, much, how much training, how much oversight, how much prep does somebody need to be before they can be, like, a fully blessed surgeon or a fully yeah. blessed cop or a fully blessed emergency responder or the amount of scrutiny that we are going to put immigrants through or the amount of, you know, choose your, you know, the amount of oversight, you know, the over-engineering that we're going to put into mm-hmm. any given military system and you, basically, or, it's almost like this. The criminalization criminalization of um, of drugs, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. All of these things. Drug usage. Yep. Yep. Yeah, all of these things fall into this category of, you know, we know, we know the cost. I'm sorry. We know, the, we know the cost of a lower standard, but the costs of the higher standard, i.e., we don't get as many doctors or we get more people – thrown in prison for like because of criminalized drug laws that you know we, I think that so that we so the number one is it gets I think people need to become comfortable really understanding the counter cost of the counterfactual so like that's, what benefits come by going back to a lower standard of pilot register of certification and I think this is increasingly important because increasingly we have the power to ratchet up in more and more places. Like, like obviously, like, increasing pilot training, like, expectations from 1,000 to 2,000, pretty straightforward case. But because of technology, we now have the ability to put yet more oversight, yet more cost, yet more, quote-unquote, safety into a system. And there's no... There, and everyone, there, every every incentive from a political leader is going to be to put more costs, more safety, more oversight into a system. But without fully and fully computing the costs of that. And so I think that people are going. To, there's going to come a day when, like, if we want to have more doctors in America, somebody is going to die on the operating table. Or like, you know, this is and we're, and we're seeing this in the healthcare debate play out. It's like how much regulatory oversight does there need to be in order to keep people safe? And then you, know, you say, well, fair enough, you can get really, and the result of this, and we've, we've kept saying more oversight, more oversight, more oversight, and that's led us to extraordinarily expensive drugs and extraordinarily expensive health care. And so, but we don't, what we're not seeing, or what we're, we're, we're kind of talking around is like the cost of having extremely uh, effective, extremely safe, quote-unquote, Healthcare, healthcare system is a lot of people don't get healthcare. Where if we deregulate a lot, I mean, it's been on the table for a long time now. Obviously, there's a desire there, a political desire from a lot of people to uh, to take some cost of healthcare uh, mm-hmm. that has that have accrued as you've seen in a lot of industries, but specifically around 
the insurance policies that doctors have to carry. Um, and then that, you know, that effectively um, jacks up, up their costs because it's more expensive to become a doctor, you carry more debt and all this stuff. You have to earn more to get cover it. So, yeah. yeah. But I think, I think aviation is a really interesting one. And, and you make an excellent point. It, we say in the military that uh, a lot of rules, maybe all the rules are written in blood. You know, somebody died mm-hmm. on an operating table, so to speak, uh, yeah. before we got to a point where we could actually change a rule or a law. And when we mm-hmm. did change it, like you say, it changed to become more uh, conservative in a lot of mm-hmm. ways in order to prevent that ever from happening again. And it be right. more and more risk averse, more and more, uh, you know, prone, mm-hmm. like um, uh, zero mentality is where you end up. But what's interesting is to look at that and America with the society and look at what Uber did with, especially with Washington D.C. Like blast through all the, um, the elites and just just blow her up and take it on, you know, take it on the ten. Um, but then also look at kind of the middle of the story where Uber is right now. That has an attitude and how that has had other negative effects for their senior leadership as you know, as a company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's I think that as as we are able to become more and more conservative in like our genetics and become more and more conservative in our regular, in our data oversight, you know, you know, it's this tension that exists between the cost of action and the cost of inaction. One is very, the cost of inaction is very visible. It's like very visible and ends in people, you know, to your, to your point, written in blood. Uh, but the costs, the, the unseen costs of that can be tremendous. You know, in the, in, the, in the missed opportunities and the expense and redeployment of resources well past their point of, of benefit. So I think that that's going to be something that we're going to have to wrestle with more and more with the changing landscape of technology.